0: Stalk Talk's podcast brings you intelligent discussion of topical issues inspired by the international city of peace and justice. I think we all know what we need to do. Problems, they come like a costume. They fit you.
1: Remove our inner critic and open our inner you know, curiosity. Eh? You know, nothing speaks louder than money. Walk in, in slam your fist on the table, say... So. <laughs> Yeah. We to work together.
0: <laughs> Something has to change. Welcome back to another episode of Stalk Talks. I'm Tom. And I'm Zoe.
1: And this week we're talking about Iran, specifically the Iranian elections, which will take place on the 18th of June. These elections are important, not only for the Iranian people, but also because of Iran's nuclear program. This has been a source of friction for many years now as its neighbors in the Middle East and many in the rest of the world are concerned about Iran's development of a nuclear bomb. Formerly known as Persia, the Islamic Republic of Iran is a theocracy ruled by the supreme leader Ali Khamenei. Iran is the second largest country in the Middle East with some of the world's largest natural gas and oil reserves.
0: So, today on our show, we're very happy to welcome Somayeh Deban. Somayeh is originally from Iran. She has spent 12 years working within the Iranian civil society domain. Currently, she is uh, the development and partnership director of Volunteer Activists. This is an organization that focuses on the development of Iranian civil society, but she has also worked with a wide range of Iranians and non-Iranians from all parts of society in order to further civic development and civic participation. So Maya, thank you so much for joining us today on Stalk Talks. Thank you very much, uh, Zoe and Tom, for inviting me for this occasion. Before we begin the questions, we just want to let our listeners know that Somaya is here in a personal capacity, and she is not speaking specifically on behalf of any particular organization in this interview. So perhaps we can start now, Somaya, with something quite basic but important, talking about the upcoming elections in your country Who's running in these elections, and how do elections work in Iran? Because it's not exactly the same as, say, for example, in the Netherlands. Thanks, uh,
2: Zoe, for your question. A quick clarification that my country is the Netherlands. I have Iranian background. I was born there. I don't have the Iranian uh, passports anymore. So that just to make it clear on where I'm standing in terms of uh, my nationality. The Iranian election uh, in Iran, it's uh, good to remember that it's uh, a selection. Actually, it's not an election. All the candidates who sign up to become, to join the list are vetted by a guardian council. And they, based on their own rules and uh, values, make a selection of who is allowed to be on the list. Women by default are not allowed. And uh, so far, a lot of ethnic minorities have been also eliminated from having the chance to be on the list, this, the same goes with uh, religious minorities.
1: I think what's interesting is earlier in, in our pre-interview, you mentioned that it could seem like parents giving their children the opportunity to choose and the options that they can choose from are already decided. So in this election, uh, Ibrahim Raisi, I, I hope I pronounced it correctly, is a strong favorite to win. And there's a suggestion that he might even take over as supreme leader in time. So what can we expect from this man, especially with relation to the poverty and the economic decline of the country.
2: What we can expect from Ibrahim Raisi is what we have uh, seen from the previous presidents as well, that they would follow the orders of the Supreme Leader and what he would dictate. The difference uh, with, with Raisi is that he has a very clear stand that he is going to follow what the Supreme Leader says. He is very open and straightforward about it. He is very internally linked in terms of family relations. He has very strong family ties with the Supreme Leader. And uh, he's been trained uh, by the Supreme Leader and close circle of the Supreme Leader. He's been in the judiciary for a very long time. He has worked in many different parts of the Iranian government. And he was also part of the, the group that made decisions on who should be executed at what uh, speed during the 80s when Iran committed mass uh, massacres against their uh, political prisoners right after the
0: revolution during the during the war okay so do you think we will see him trying to tackle some some of the issues like poverty and economic decline I mean how will he how will he approach it do you think It's not in the hand
2: of uh, the president to make these kind of decisions. The money in whatever form that is as an income comes to the Iranian government, either through selling oil, which is usually the case, or through other sorts of exchange, is decided by by the supreme leader, again, to which direction to to be spent. If you look at, for instance, the oil income during Ahmadinejad time, it was highest in years combined in the previous uh, years of... Prior to his election. And nobody still knows where that money has gone. Well, we can speculate that the money has gone to to SEPA, to the nuclear development in Iran, to expanding Iran's hidden arm in uh, in the region or even in Europe. So the money is there from selling oil, and it's not going to be necessarily spent to boost the economy for the poor, unless the supreme leader finds it as a way to sustain the power. So one one thing also we discussed uh, previously is that the Iranian regime has one objective, and that's staying in power. If staying in power is obtained by handing out money, cash to civilians, they would do so to bring them to the election. Uh, They would do that. If sustaining the power is gained by killing their opponents, they would do that. They have no hesitation to to pull the trigger on that, or in most of the time in Iranian cases, uh, pulling the the chair under the feet of the person that they are going to hang. So there is no uh, rule except staying in power for the Iranian regime, And in terms of the economy, yeah, Ebrahim Raisi has started his campaign by going to the Chamber of Commerce in different sectors to show that, yes, economy is high on my uh, my list. But again, we need to take into account that this is a parade, you know, of uh, saying I'm doing this, I'm independent, I'm doing a good job. They all are in the same boat, basically, and that's the boat of Islamic Republic staying in power.
0: Okay, so it's more of a role play. Absolutely. You've mentioned now the, the nuclear program, which, of course, is what makes these elections so interesting and important not only for Iran, but for the Middle East and even the, the world at large. There's, there were sanctions applied primarily by the US for many years now, but they were increased during the, the Trump administration and they were designed to sort of cripple the Iranian economy. Iran does continue to enrich uranium at, at a fairly alarming rate. How do you see these new elections or, or approaching the nuclear deal? What, what do you think they might do? to to re-establish this deal? What are your thoughts on that?
2: I think uh, it very much depends on what would help the Islamic regime to, to sustain its existence. If it means that if they come back to the table, which at the moment is happening, that they are into negotiations again with U.S. and other powers, if it helps to improve the image of Islamic Republic in the world, they would sit at the table, they would sign any paper you put in front of them. And if that means that the flow of money is coming back to Iran, which would help them to build better uh, missiles that can range uh, from uh, Iran to any country in the region or even in Europe, they would do it. And that's how they have uh, used their, uh, their resources so far. So the negotiations, the nuclear deal, Uh, whether Iran uh, signs it again or not, it very much depends on how it would help Iran to continue its existence. The 2015 deal for sure added another 10, 15 years to to the life of Islamic Republic. So if another signature on a paper with no accountability towards it because Iran signed the deal, but there was no accountability. Iran uh, has uh, not declared all the sites where they are running their nuclear programs. They have not declared all the other uh, missile programs that they have been working on. So if this is going to be repeated again, a signature without any accountability, Iran will do it. It's not a problem for them. But if on the other side, they want to show to their constituency who would go and vote for them that We are not going to bow to the global powers. They are not going to sign it. They will come out of it and uh, try to funnel their uh, activities in other ways.
1: I I think what's interesting is you've made a very clear example of what the stance is of Iran and and sort of the the theocracy and how the decisions are being made. So what stance would you like Europe and and the U.S. to take? What stance should they take?
2: Well, it's a very uh, complex issue. Because if we want to talk about Iran, we have to talk about the hidden arm of Iran in in, in the region, in Europe. And that means that uh, we need to talk about how Iran is uh, supporting Hezbollah in Palestine. We have to talk about how Iran is uh, working in, in Syria with Bashar Assad. So we need to talk about all these Different activities. We need to talk about Iran's presence in Venezuela. So this all needs to be combined and discussed at the same time. It's like a, it's a wicked problem. If you pull one leg, the other one starts moving and you need to work on it as a collective. If US puts on sanctions, and then through Europe, there is some way that Iran can go around the sanctions, which we have seen happen before then it's not going to work. Or if the U.S. and and Europe work together, but China still buys and sells from Iran, that's also not going to work. So we need to work on it collectively. And I think Europe can take a much stronger stand and work with the human rights organizations that are working inside Europe. And Iran has signed to their treaties, ICC has, which is based in The Hague, Iran has signed a lot of their agreements and very, a very good opportunity that Europe applies it. A lot of these people who are known as terrorists, Ibrahim Raisi is on a terrorist list uh, for criminal uh, activities that he has committed. Uh, Said Murtazavi from 2009 election who committed a lot of crimes, they are on a wanted list and they travel to Europe and they come in and they go out, not illegally, they come with their own actual passports and their European countries, European Union can take a much stronger stand and arrest these people and take them to court and have them uh, prosecuted. But what happens is that they come, they do their business, God knows what that is, and they come back untouched. And we need to take a stronger stand as Europe for these kind of you know, opportunities that basically happens and bring those people to
0: justice. I mean, I think, Samaya, there are people, certainly in Europe, if you listen to discussions from European think tanks and policymakers, there is, a, I think, a general agreement in many European capitals that if the rest of the world takes a stronger stance against Iran, it might push it further and further, encourage further extremism, further isolation, so, so there's an, an idea that if, if they could reach out to Iran, build bridges, try to sort of welcome them back in some sense to the fold, this would be a more productive way of altering politics in Iran. I mean, what would you say to, to that perspective?
2: That's a very optimistic perspective, that if we keep having trade with Iran, if we have uh, if we keep having conversation in Iran we prevent a big disaster. Let me give you an example. When the 2015 nuclear deal was signed and flow of investment went towards Iran, 87% of those investments went to organizations that are owned by SEPA. And SEPA is the one who is running the war in Syria, who is putting bombs in Iraq, who is supporting Hezbollah to attack Israel. So if the economy was owned by non-government organization that the government didn't have a hand into those companies, sure, but that's not the case in Iran. So you cannot expect the outcome that you would see if you go and present this method of trade and conversation to other countries where actual private sector exists, civil society has its a space to go and, and have a conversation and have its role. It's not the case in Iran. So that's not going to work for a country like Iran. And on the other side of it, I know that there are a lot of people, a lot of opposition saying that we have to go and attack Iran and there should be a war against them. But you know we can also look at the situation in Afghanistan. That okay, the U.S. and the rest of the world went to war with the Taliban, and now after ten years they are withdrawing. And look, that Taliban is taking power again. And look, that we are sitting at the conversation table with Taliban who shot the women, who raped the women, who do so many criminal acts. We are back at the table of conversation. This gives a Different perspective that yes, maybe negotiations and conversations uh, would work, but not the way it has been done before. It needs to be a lot more strict, bringing into account the human rights issues when we are talking about trade, bringing into account the, the justice uh, independence that people can actually be heard when they file a complaint. The civil society has the space to actually act independently. And if in those trade negotiations these elements are a precondition and there is a great accountability and monitoring on the issue, then yes, let's keep the conversation. But if it's just about keeping Iran quiet so they don't kick, I don't think that would uh, help anyone because if they don't kick now, they would kick in 10 years' time. That is just keeping the existence of Islamic Republic as an oppressive regime that it is now, and helping move forward and not for another decade,
1: I, I think you touch upon something very important because it, it's visible throughout. Is perhaps the inability to influence it, and nowhere is that clearer in in well the citizens or the people living in Iran. Um, it seems that there is little that the citizens can do. Mm-hmm. So, so, what hope is there for the citizens of Iran for possibly democratic representation?
2: It's a very depressing situation, I can tell from the conversations that I have with my my friends back in Iran. I always call it losing a losing game. So at the end of the day, the Iranian citizens are the losers of this game, however we take it. It's now the conversation about how are we going to lose it? Are we going to lose it in the next 50 years to come? more people dying of all the corruption, or all the uh, operations that are going on, or at once we are going to, and then a new thing is going to come forward. At the end of the day, it's a losing game. And maybe the only act that Iranians can take at the moment, the Iranians who are residing in Iran, is to support each other the ones who really need the financial support to stay alive, to put bread on their table, to have a roof over their head. They support each other, the ones who can, and help each other not to go to the voting booths to cast a ballot that has no value, and protect each other this way. There are a lot of billionaires in Iran who have enough in their bank accounts to feed millions of others, they can use that money internally, feed the neighborhood, so that the the ones who do not have the money are not tempted by three kilos of potato and two uh, kilos of chicken to go and vote in, in exchange for that commodity. And I think that's the way from a community level, if the communities, if the neighborhoods support each other Do not divide based on their ethnic backgrounds, their religious backgrounds. They keep uh, and stick together. That's the only
0: way forward at the community level. So a form of sort of civil protest.
2: Yes, because everyone's life absolutely matters. We cannot say that, oh, let them go to the streets. We are sitting here in our safe homes in Europe and say, no, go to the streets and protest. I would never advise, I would never invite anyone to go to the streets because the chances of them getting shot is 100%. I invite them not to go to vote, not to work for governmental organizations if they can. So the the government collapses on its own lack of uh, support from the people because there are people, there are Iranian people who have all the rights to call themselves Iranian and they wholeheartedly support Iranian regime. And we cannot say, oh, you're not Iranian. No, they are part of the Iranian community, and we need to go and talk to them. We need to go and convert and have a conversation with them to convert them from their view of supporting the Iranian regime. As much as we can move forward with this level of conversation, then we can hope, only hope, that at some point, The Iranian regime loses its internal support from the Iranian people. It might be an interesting uh, point for you to look that there is an organization called Gaman. They run surveys around Iranians at mass level. They run a survey. Uh, Iran, Iranians, uh, whether they want to vote or not. Their previous one was on religion, that how uh, Iranians are becoming less religious. If I remember again the stats correctly, about 85% of the people that they uh, surveyed, which was over 80,000 people, they said they are not going to vote. And I think that's an amazing, that's a great step that civilians inside Iran are taking and are not going to vote because when there is no vote, there is no way for Iranian government to prove its legitimacy towards the international community. And that's a great pressure point.
1: It's It speaks almost to the, the, the strangeness and the complicated nature of this discussion where we are well in, in the sense where you're encouraging people not to vote rather than to vote because voting would mean participating in the system. And I hope that we managed to, well, give the listeners of the complicated nature of this conversation. And I'm, I'm sure there's so much more to talk about, but I think this is where we'll have to leave it for today. We we just want to say uh, thank you so much, Samaya, for, for such a, Fascinating conversation.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
1: What I would like to do is also refer people that if they want to know more about the, the situation, that they can go to the website www.volunteeractivists.nl. There's more information there. Um, are there other places that people should get information, Samaya, if they'd like to be more informed or know more about this topic?
2: For sure, there are a lot of different websites. What I would advise is that cross-check the information from one site when you go and, and visit it. Because the story is always told from a perspective. I have my own political stance. I have my own perspective on the subject. And I invite every listener to go and talk to other Iranians as well to hear their perspective. Because each of us are telling a story from our own uh, viewpoint. The same with news agencies. The same with uh, websites who present uh, views on uh, Iran. I also invite people to check the results of these surveys that have been uh, conducted on Gamon uh, website. Uh, it's actually a Dutch uh, based group of scientists who are uh, running this. It's great to look at statistics, put them in the context of it and analyze it uh, with uh, a bit of uh, a bit of salt for
0: sure. Thank you so much Samaya once more. To our listeners, please stay tuned for another episode at the same time next week. As always, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Anchor. You can also check our YouTube channel for past episodes. If you're somebody who likes your visuals, they also give you the uncut versions on YouTube. We look forward to being with you again next week on Stalk Talks. Thank you again for joining us and have a good week.